Hello, and welcome back to The City Speaks. This is episode nine, and this one's going to be titled Communities, Gatekeepers, and the Game Awards. I'm your host, Spark City, as always, so let's just jump right into it. What, what are we talking about on these three topics today? Um, so communities and gatekeepers are kind of like one topic, and then the Game Awards is a little follow-up that I was thinking about, because it's coming up soon, and I, I wanted to talk about it. So let's talk about communities and gatekeeping, and gatekeeping's role in communities, both in idealistic world and in practice. Um, so the definition, let's start with the definition because, you know, I've, I've learned my lesson from not understanding the words that I'm using in my own arguments. Um, so I looked it up and the definition, if you search community definition into Google, two come up. The first one is a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common. The second one is a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. Both of these definitions place emphasis on sharing a characteristic or a value or some common thread. There has to be a common thread for a community to exist among its participants by definition. This is similar to language uh, in a lot of ways, as I noted, noted in my last episode. These are all kind of arbitrary concepts, you know, when, the, when, when they say that society is a social construct, it is. Um, these things only exist because enough people agree that they exist. Enough people agree that a country exists or enough people agree that a word exists and has the, the definition that it does. Because people say like, yep, that's what that means. And we're all going to use it like that. So that solidifies the definition. But it is by nature at its fundamental level, extremely arbitrary. So this definition of community, you know, living in the same place and having a particular characteristic in common, probably initially initially started, you know, it applied in a very simple way. You know, you're a group of people living together. The shared goal was surviving, being being alive longer. You know, let's work together. Me and you probably can survive together a lot longer than we can survive by ourselves. I want to live longer because I don't want to die. And so let's make a community. And so that's probably how it started. Um, nowadays, obviously, it's a little bit different. Communities are far, far more numerous in scope and variety. You still have countries and, and races and all that stuff. But even within them, there's a bunch of subcategories. And there's a lot of communities whose functions go well, you know, are, are much more are far removed from survival, such as, you know, social hobbies social anything really like biking gaming whatever and so gaming is going to be the one that we focus on today um, and gatekeeping as it relates to community as it relates to anything but usually it's gatekeeping a community is used today and it has a very negative connotation and deservedly so you know it's it's so the definition of gatekeeping is the activity of controlling and usually limiting general access to something and even the even the definition reads negatively, you know, limiting somebody's access, access to something is usually not a good thing, unless it's like meth or something, you definitely want to limit your access to meth. Um, but especially as exclusion has been a hot topic of contention in gaming, and we touched on it last week, uh, you know, difficulty is accessibility and accessibility options in general, limiting somebody's access to something limit limiting some somebody's accessibility is generally regarded as a bad thing for very good reason. Uh, so recently on Twitter, because of course, I came across a classic example of gatekeeping. The tweet read, so many, quote, gamers, end quote, nowadays don't even like video games. They just want to quickly play through a story and be done with it and on to the next. The tweet author then went on to state that she stays away from AAA titles and only plays Japanese-made games, which I thought was interesting because as somebody who's working on the Platinum Trophy for Tales of Hysteria, which is a Japanese-made game by Bandai Namco, I can confidently say that inflating a game's runtime to 100 plus hours via mindless grinding is not my idea of quality in a game. Um, this person's tweet was in response to somebody, you know, saying that essentially they, they posted a meme that insinuated that if a game is advertised as having 100 hours of content, it's a bit of a snooze fest for them, whereas 20 hours of content, they much prefer it because, you know, they don't have as much time in their life or for whatever reason. 
And oftentimes a shorter game can lead to a tighter experience. The extreme example of this being Portal. Portal is like four to five hours long, yet I don't think most people would argue that it is not an incredibly tight experience and it's, it's exactly as long as it needs to be. So, of course, this being Twitter, you know, the, the, the usual response was just loud choruses of people agreeing or disagreeing, you know, not really advancing the conversation any because it's Twitter. There's only so much you can do. And, you know, this might have been the goal of the tweet all along. Maybe this person's just a bit of an edgelord contrarian who likes to flame stuff and has the typical like Western bad Japanese good mentality. When in reality, I mean, both both cultures have their problems um, and both styles of making a game have their problems. Um, but influencer culture being what it is, it's kind of hard to tell if this was just like a transparent attempt to drive up interactions or whatever. Um, but, you know, assuming this person actually believes what they tweeted, when did we become our parents? You know, remember how annoying, I mean, the classic example of like, oh, that's not music. Oh, you, no, when I was a kid, they made real music. You know, that's the classic example, you know. And when did we become this, oh, you're not a real gamer if all you do is play AAA titles. Like, when did we become our parents? When did we feel the need to <laughs> to gatekeep this hard? So, you know, in a very minor defense of gatekeeping, in an ideal form, you know, I think some level of gatekeeping is necessary simply to define the community. But the problem is, as the community gets bigger, you're going to struggle to define it because, like we said, the definition relies on the large majority of people agreeing on it. And as you get a bigger and bigger community, and gaming is, you know, millions, maybe even billions strong at this point, um, you, you are not going to be able to get several million hundred million people to agree on anything it's just not going to happen a community can't exist without a definition though so you need something you need some form and i guess in that sense defining the community could be seen as gatekeeping um and you can and and you can see this trend of like the larger a community grows the harder it is to agree on stuff um and you might say it becomes impossible to agree on a definition like what makes a canadian what makes an American? What makes, you know, a German? What makes a British person? What makes a white person? What makes a black person? What makes a gay person? What makes a trans person? You, you, the bigger these communities get, the harder it gets to really crystallize a definition. And so I think that the definition necessarily has to be broad. It has to be extremely broad. And then within that category, you can break yourself down um, because categorization is something that humans generally gravitate towards because it sort of gives people a shorthand for your identity. But the problem is, much like Twitter, it lacks a lot of nuance. And this obviously is a shortcoming of trying to categorize things. And this is why you get into like hyper categorization when people define themselves so intensely that it becomes almost meaningless because at the point at that point, you're just describing yourself as an individual. So why bother having 400,000 categories you fit into when you are the combination of those things rather than any one of them in particular? So we interact with, especially if you're on social media, especially something like Twitter or Instagram, you interact with people you don't know every day. So having these categories is useful for people to sort of give you a shorthand like, oh, I'm a gamer, I do this, I do that. So you can have a reasonable expectation of who they are. But this is, it doesn't work. It, it lacks so much nuance and you don't actually get a picture of who the person is. So let's take a crack at defining gamer, right? As fairly as we can. Try to be as fair and objective about it as we can. It's tricky because obviously it's still subjective. So keep in mind, this is just, this is how I would define it. Um, and I don't have any more power than anybody else does to to define gamer in any sort of definitive sense. Definitive, God, I need a different word there. But to define it in any sort of concrete, yes, this is the law sense. Draw my line in the sand, so to speak. So for me, a gamer is someone who enjoys video games. And someone who does not enjoy video games is not a gamer. Um this feels like the fairest definition to me. It's very broad. 
you know? It's necessarily broad, though. I think it's a necessity that this definition has to be broad. There's no arbitrary concrete measurements like you have to be this good at a game or you have to have played this many hours of video games or you have to do this much per week. You have to you can't like visual novels if you're a gamer like stuff. There's nothing like that because that all feels incredibly arbitrary. Whereas somebody who enjoys video games, probably games and therefore is a gamer and somebody who doesn't enjoy games probably doesn't want to be called a gamer. So it, it makes sense. Just like me, like I wouldn't, you know, I don't care much for movies, so I wouldn't call myself a cinema buff, you know, just for the sake of wanting to be in a community. Of course, and like, you know, sort of leading on from that, it, it we're going to have situations where it feels infuriatingly obvious that somebody is simply claiming to be a member of a community, either for social clout or other reasons. And I think this is where some of the instinct to gatekeep stems from. I mean, you see it in all over the place. I mean, it's one of the most tired tropes in a romantic comedy, right? Of like, oh, person, or even even like Friends or Seinfeld or something, person pretends to be way into a hobby that their love interest is into so that they can bond with them over something and then gets embarrassed when, you know, their love interest realizes that they actually don't know anything about it. And so we've seen this time and time again. You know, as, as a gamer, I don't want to be lumped into the same group as somebody who doesn't care about something that I care a lot about, who's just using it for clout. I don't want to be, also don't want to be lumped into a stereotype that doesn't represent me. You know, you have the classic, like, females have have to contend with uh you know e-girl stereotypes and i'm sure a lot of them don't really like that stereotype that girls who play it are just doing it for attention similarly i don't like the stereotype that most guys who game have terrible social skills even if it's true for me um i have good hygiene at least i think like a shower every day so that's pretty cool uh, <laughs> but you know i i don't like the fact that those stereotypes exist and i don't like to be lumped into them and so when people use those stereotypes, it feels like it taints the group that you consider yourself a part of. And I think that's where some of the instinct to gatekeep comes from. Not excusing it, but I think it's important to understand the root of these things. And this is potentially, I think, for some people, I think a lot of the time when people gatekeep gaming, they're seeing a perversion of an identity that means a lot to them. I think the trend is generally speaking, you know, this is the classic, this is our parents, your music isn't real music, music was only good when I was a kid when your hobby hits the mainstream like gaming has in the last 10 15 years it attracts a larger casual audience that doesn't treat the medium with the same reverence or seriousness that the hobbyists usually do i mean there's an example of this in movies i'm bringing up movies a lot because it's a good parallel because they're both entertainment media martin scorsese just got put on blast by by simu liu if that's how you pronounce his name excuse me um because martin scorsese was like people don't go to see marvel movies for the actors they go to see them for the superheroes and simu got bent out of shape about this um and and you know it's it's tricky right because on some level i'm sure there are people who went to a marvel movie to see simu in action mr leo in action um but a lot of i think there's some there's water to scorsese's argument as well that you know a lot of people go to marvel movies simply for the spectacle and and because they want to be entertained not necessarily because any of the the, the actors are particularly amazing and this can be this is upsetting and speaking of actors taking on video game roles you know you've got two very interesting comparisons with the sonic films that have come out and have been very well received after an initially rocky period where the animation looked terrible but you see interviews with ben schwartz who voices sonic and he is very prepared and it you know he's either super prepared or he's actually played the games either way he cares enough about the role to take an interest in the source material whereas somebody like chris pratt gets dunked on because he promises that his voice is going to be crazy, so like something we've never heard. And then at least in the small trailer that we've seen, yes, it is very small. So let's wait and see. But it's just him with maybe a Brooklyn accent, which is not something we haven't heard. It's just Chris Pratt again. And he 
he doesn't seem to really know any any of the Mario lore, which like, yeah, sure, maybe you don't need to because this is a standalone movie. But this is where I think you get the hobbyists who gatekeep and get up in arms about this because it feels like their hobby and something that is very important to them is not being taken seriously. And it could have been taken seriously by somebody who actually cared about the Mario franchise or whatever, you know, get Charles Martinet in there. And I think that <clears throat> there's definitely a pushback and I've felt it as well because there is an industry trend of when something hits the mainstream, the casual player and the casual consumer, I should say, because in this case, it's not just gaming. But if you look at a lot of movies and stuff like that and a lot of games, they come out and they're catering more towards like a, a theater audience, you know, not necessarily like your film critic or your your cinema buff or what, anything like that. They just catering towards what's going to sell the most because it's a business at the end of it. They're trying to grab that sweet, casual dosh. And that, as a hobbyist, as somebody who's put a lot of time and effort into a hobby and cares about the hobby, you sort of see it get perverted in a way and derailed. And so that, at least for me, um, can give you a lot of misgivings about the, the future of your hobby. Is it just going to be this? Like, is the, is the creative aspect of the medium going to die out in favor of just milking these tired tropes? But I think it's a little bit weird to try and take a snapshot of that when that's existed basically as long as these entertainment media have existed. You know, there's always, there were always terrible movie tie-in games. Before the game crash in the 90s, there were terrible merchandise tie-in. Like, every second game, it seemed like, not that I was alive for this, but looking at a lot of the releases from the time, it was like, oh, Pepsi Man game and Cheetos game. And like, what? What are these movie games? Aladdin the movie, the game the movie. Um, all these things. And so I think people attach, you know, hobbies are important to people. And when they see them getting perverted like this, it or at least in a way that they feel is a perversion, they they react. Um, and like I said, not defending it, I think gatekeeping is a shitty thing to do in practice. I can idealize about it all I want. You know, having to set a definition might be considered gatekeeping, but it is. I think it's an essential part of a community because you need to have a definition for the community. You need to have that common thread and common goal. Um, but that's as far as I go with it. I think in practice, it's usually a useless thing. Um, people are, are defending their own egos. And this and this point I'm making about this perversion of identity, this shouldn't matter to you. You should be participating in the hobby, not because of the social prestige that it brings you, in my opinion. You should be participating in the hobby because you want to. And within the context of gamer, and the reason why gamer needs to be necessarily broad is because under that umbrella, there are plenty of subcategories that you can then you know, isolate yourself into if you feel like the rest of the scene doesn't appreciate you or you're not represented in it. Hardcore versus casual, single player versus multiplayer, genre preferences, whatever. Being a gamer should have no innate prestige to it and no inherent meaning of accomplishment or anything. Um, and speaking of accomplishments, gatekeeping accomplishments in gaming comes from somewhere else entirely. It's not so much an identity thing, but it's more of like an insecurity thing. And I think the root of this is fairly logical, and I'll get into it with a couple examples later. But the classic example I have is like, oh, well, you didn't really beat Elden Ring if you used summons or if you used mimic tier summon or specific summons or whatever. That can take many forms. Oh, you really didn't really beat this if you played on easy mode. You didn't really beat this if you didn't, you know, if you didn't do it while you were drunk or something like that. <clears throat> and it's usually generally based around somebody's insecurity. Um, much like trying to imply that people who enjoy AAA titles are fake gamers, like our Twitter example before that I mentioned, trying to imply that a certain intended mechanic is less less valid, it, it strikes me as incredibly arbitrary, right? So you have a person who's like, oh, if you use this easy summon, you didn't beat the game the right way. It's a very arbitrary line in the sand, and you can you can translate that logic and use it to defeat that person's own position. This like, oh, I'm going to draw my line in the sand here. Everybody below me didn't didn't beat the game properly but i did the people who 
trash using summons or making the game easier probably haven't beaten the game on a dance pad or beaten fire giant with their bare hands which i talked about last episode those two things have actually been done imagine if the dance pad gamer was like yeah you haven't beaten elden ring unless you've done it on a dance pad it sounds ridiculous but that's essentially the same logic as like oh if you if you use this you know this summon to make the game easier for yourself you didn't beat it it's equally as arbitrary and ridiculous generally if you're going to gatekeep and you can apply your own logic to your own experience and it defeats your position you probably shouldn't be gatekeeping you can't arbitrarily draw a line in the sand. You don't, none of us have the individual power to do that. Um, I think where this comes from is at least pretty related. So here's a story I have that's kind of a similar example. And you could, you could deem this as gatekeeping. So I was in first year music in university, my first and only full year of post-secondary education. And I was in my, my music history class and my prof was talking to us about plagiarism on assignments. And he was very serious about it. And he said... You know, the classic thing that university professors do is they preach moralism and they preach, you know, like integrity and you don't want to compromise the integrity of your your work and whatever stuff like that. And he's like, but for me, on a personal level, and I agree with that, but on a personal individual level, you cheating and getting the same degree I have devalues the work that I put in for my degree. And that pisses me off. And you could argue that that's like, oh, that's super gatekeepy, but it's it's I think it's valid. There are examples of this in in gaming that i can give you for example trophy hunting is is a big there's a lot of arbitrary random bullshit gatekeeping that goes on for example here's one that pertains to me specifically there's a game called hyperlight drifter and there's a trophy in that game for beating the game without dying there is a way that is not intended for you to be able to cheese this trophy by backing up your save because the game is an auto save when you die so you back up your save to the cloud you don't let it auto update and then if you die, you can just reload from that save and the game will forget that you died, essentially. I call it time travel. It's just save scumming. It's save scumming to a cloud. And that's how I got it. I died three times in my in my quote-unquote deathless run. And I'm very open about this because I think it's important. I have the same trophy as somebody who did it legit. But the important thing is I always acknowledge, this is for me, this is my approach to it anyway, I always acknowledge what I did differently. And the fact that that person's accomplishment is much more impressive as a result to bring it down to anybody who played fall guys let's let's narrow this down even further fall guys has an achievement called infallible which is winning five games in a row and when the game came out and when i got the achievement really the only way you could do it was through solo main show um you had to play you know five games with 59 other people who you didn't know and you had to win all of them in a row and so I did that about two weeks after the game came out. And then in this spring-ish, around March, April of 2021, they released custom lobbies. And custom lobbies, you could win a custom lobby, but it wouldn't give you a win on your profile. Like, it wouldn't give you a crown or anything. It wouldn't give you your usual rewards. But for a brief window, it was two to three weeks, I think, before they patched it, you could get infallible. It would still count as a win towards infallible for whatever reason. So people got the achievement that way. And I, as somebody who actually took the hard route and got it the developer intended way, I guess, <clears throat> never had a problem with this. And I said this on stream many times. You can get it if there's a way you can get it, if there's something in the game that allows you to get it, you can get it however you want. But I think it's important to acknowledge that there is a certain hierarchy of accomplishment there, right? You have somebody who just found, had three friends and hopped into a couple, a custom lobby together and and just got fed wins versus somebody who earned it in a way that's a lot more it took a lot more skill and i think that as long as that difference is acknowledged i've got no problem with how people do it i think 
you know, if someone's being disingenuous about an accomplishment, for example, if I cheated on my degree and was flexing about it like I'd actually earned it, I think many of us would agree that I should be probably taken down a notch. I think the issue with, you know, that that's the that's a real world example. I think the issue with most of the accomplishments I listed above in gaming is that they don't have a lot of real world consequences. I'm very proud of my trophy collection and what I've accomplished, of course, and I encourage others to be proud of their own gaming accomplishments and whatever, but it's it's mostly just a self-serving goal. It impacts nobody. It doesn't impact anybody in really any way. Um, I think that the reason why people get into this gatekeeping mindset is because they're comparing themselves to other people, which I think is an exercise in futility. There's always going to be somebody better or worse than you, pretty much whatever you're doing, unless you're the absolute worst, the absolute best. There's always going to be somebody better or wor- better and worse than you. So you're always going to be in the middle somewhere. So you might as well get comfortable with that and just compete against yourself and not worry too much about what other people do. It's tricky though, man. Like it's, I guess to summarize my position, I think ideally gatekeeping is only necessary to, to define the community because without a definition, like I said, without that shared goal or characteristic, without that common mission, that common thread, a community by definition doesn't exist. Um, but in practice, you know, gatekeeping usually just acts as a manifestation of people's insecurities, which is a negative or, you know, a, a reaction to a, a developer trend or a trend in their hobby that is hit the mainstream or something like I said with movies and games. I think that people need to get through this. It's very easy, and I've I've fallen into this trap myself a couple times, where I dog on Call of Duty, I dog on Assassin's Creed, I dog on all these, you know, Madden and, and FIFA and 2K. All these games that are essentially live service games that make you pay $60 every year for like a roster update or like a one new map or some, you know, slightly better graphics or whatever, without any actual improvements. And people eat this shit up. Um, I'm not going to include Pokemon in this because I think Pokemon is, I think the the... It's one of the best-selling games of all time. Of, of 2022, it's the fastest-selling game, the, the ones that just came out. And I've watched uh, my girlfriend Mary Lynn play it, and it looks fun. I mean, yes, there's bugs, but Bethesda games have bugs up the butt, and everybody loves that. But their entire channel is dedicated to it. Even if the bugs are game-breaking, their entire channel is dedicated to making silly videos about bugs in Bethesda games. I don't understand why Pokemon gets the hate treatment. When Bethesda games are similarly formulaic... Um, and I love Skyrim. Skyrim and Oblivion are two of two of my favorite games. But, and I'm no no lover of Pokemon. I stopped after Gen two. I've I've since played through most of them, but I don't have any nostalgia from them from my childhood beyond Gen two. You know, I think when I forget where I was going with this, but where, <laughs> I think when you get into when you get into gatekeeping as a negative, and you get into all this stuff, it's just it's just not good. People need to take a look inside themselves and realize that like they, not only is it completely useless to tear somebody down who beat Elden Ring. But like for the way that they beat Elden Ring, but it's also like, does that make you feel better? And especially like you have to acknowledge at some point that if you get to draw a line in the sand to devalue others accomplishments, somebody who is better than you could also do that. And neither of you would be right, but you would just be making people feel bad. And what's the point of that? Like you want gaming to grow? Do you want sweet games? Oh yeah. I remember where I was going with this. You know, we're talking about triple A you know, tendencies and people not being thrilled with them. And like, I get that, you know, I've, I've bagged on the franchises a bunch that I've, that I mentioned, but something that really helped. And I, I might've mentioned this last episode is that we sat down and uh, when the game awards dropped their nominations and uh, as an exercise, you know, we were on stream and we were all going through it and saying who we'd vote for. And I was like, well, why don't we do a thing where everybody gives me their five favorite games that have been released since 2010 from 2010 to 2022 till present day, 12 years. 
You know, that way, like you get out of for most people, you get out of the childhood nostalgia stuff where you're like, oh, my God, I for me, it's like, oh, I really like Orphan Scion of Sorcery, even though that game does not hold up even in the slightest, even though I like it a lot. You get out of that sort of like nostalgia headspace um, because a lot of people in my community are are late 20s, early 30s. So you you're a young adult and onwards, basically. So you get out of that like childlike nostalgia. <clears throat> and not only we had, I think, five or six people put put a full list down that I, I put on stream and not only was there very little overlap like there are very few people who had similar lineups more than like one or two games in common um there were so many games that i completely forgot about that were amazing we live in a time where amazing games are coming out semi-regularly like a couple times a year i'd say and yes the triple a stuff and the stuff that gets all the hype and the praise and things like that is might not be for you but there's always going to be something for you in gaming, whether you're into more passive like visual novels and walking sims, whether you're into more chill sort of routine oriented farming sims and life sims, whether you're into adventure games, action adventure, more hardcore stuff like Dark Souls, like that that stuff exists. It's all out there. You just might need to look for it a little bit harder. And that's sort of just a, a classic example of of something that was originally artistic and hobbyist hitting the mainstream and becoming more commercialized that's sort of just a negative byproduct but it does also having it become commercialized also lowers the barrier to entry and more people are able to make more games and so that's how you can get stuff like celeste undertale tunic all these games that sort of came out of nowhere really and and people really enjoyed them and either because they hearkened back to a nostalgic era like tunic kind of did or whether they subverted gaming as a whole like Undertale did, or whether they were a very timely and important conversation or had a very timely and important message about one's own identity and, and wrestling with one's own demons like like Celeste did. Um, and I think that's important to realize is these games still exist. All those games that I just mentioned were released in the last five, maybe six years. I think Celeste was 2017, and so was Undertale. Five or six years, and we still have amazing examples like this. Not every game that comes out is going to be a banger. Not every line of dialogue in God of War was really good, even though I think the writing in that game was stellar. There's still going to be some like eye-rolling moments. But if you look for it, it's there. And I think that's something to remember. And I think if people did that more and worried less about just having AAA churn out something that was catered to them, you would see a little bit less gatekeeping, I think. At least on the on like the oh these fake gamers. Maybe not from the insecurity side. You still that's that's like people need to look inward, I think, a little bit. But yeah, that's my long-winded rant about that. I think gatekeeping ideally has a function, but in practice does not really ever translate to that very well. Um and it's tricky, right? Like you don't nobody wants to be exclusionary, but at some point, if you want to define a community, you have to set the boundaries for it. And boundaries are by definition going to be exclusionary or in practice are going to be exclusionary. But the problem is like I'm not actively excluding people with my definition of like if you enjoy games, you're a gamer. If you don't enjoy games, you're not a gamer. Because if you don't enjoy games, why would you want to be considered a gamer? Why would you want to be considered part of that community? If you have friends in gaming, it's not the same as being a gamer, right? So why would you want that title? It doesn't have any prestige associated with it. It doesn't have any social clout or shouldn't have any social clout associated with it. I have a lot of friends who watch movies. I have a lot of friends. I had a lot of friends who like to party. Would I consider myself a, in the party scene or a movie buff because I had friends who did it, even though I didn't like it myself? No, I wouldn't. And I don't think people should. Um, I, and again, I think FOMO can play a role here, but... 
Anyway, let's move on. Let's move on before I start repeating myself too much. So let's talk about the Game Awards. The Game Awards doesn't really tie into this at all. It's a bit of a non sequitur topic, but that's fine. It's my podcast. Shut up. So the Game Awards revealed their list of nominees, and I think the show is taking place December 8th. Um, and I enjoy watching it. I like watching it on stream. You know, we're allowed to co-stream it, which is really fun. And you get to talk uh, with your community about games they enjoyed. And I think that's really great. Um, and we all went through the nominations, like I said, and, and sort of picked what we would what we would pick, kind of like an Oscar pool, but like nobody was betting anything. Um, what struck me, though, that kind of bugs me is like the same four AAA titles kind of appeared over and over in so many categories. Um, and I don't think... And this isn't, you know, I'm going to say a lot of stuff that sort of sounds negative about the Game Awards. I gen, but I want to preface it by saying when I think, when I look at Jeff Keighley and I listen to him talk and I see him perform at the Game Awards and, and host, I don't think, I genuinely think he enjoys the show he's putting on and he enjoys celebrating the year in gaming. Um, I think my biggest issue is that as it becomes popular, it's going to attract a certain level of prestige and insider, insider trading almost. So I read about the nomination process for games on wikipedia because i was very interested i was like how do they get these six games on the screen like how do they come to that conclusion so what i read as read on wikipedia so you know you can meme on me for that but i think it's fairly reliable um it starts with an advisory committee of people who select anywhere from 30 to 100 gaming publications like gaming news gaming gaming journalist publications gaming outlets um but the mayor major players that select these publications are are, or the, the advisory committee that selects these publications, excuse me, are major players in the gaming industry. Like Sony and Microsoft are on that panel, on that committee. AMD's on there. I'm sure NVIDIA's got a spot or whatever. Like there are industry titans, people who stand a vested interest from seeing their games portrayed in a good light, who are on this committee, who then select the publications. And some of these publications, you know, are slanted very heavily. You have publications that are very Sony focused entitled Push Square, you know, as as stuff like that. You have gaming blogs that are, you know, pretty much only cover Sony stuff and you have stuff from Microsoft as well. Um, and so they nominate the six titles we see in each category. The committee is not allowed to vote on these, but they just pick the people who are going to vote. So it's like one step removed. So the publications and the general public then vote on the nominations. And you're like, cool, like they put it to a public vote. But unfortunately, the publications votes count for 90% of the final score. And the general public's vote, i.e. us watching the thing that actually like phone in and whatever, American Idol style, it only counts for 10%. So a publications vote is nine times more weighted, you know, in the final score. And this feels really disingenuous to me. Like I... You know, I understand you can definitely make the argument here that like doing it this way keeps it in the hands of the professionals, you know, which isn't always a bad thing. How many times like look at the friggin campaign that ended up na- naming that British naval ship Bodie McBoatface or whatever, or the time that in the NHL, I think there was a player Rory Fitzpatrick, I think I'm not sure if he actually went to the All Star game, but some of the players get into the all-star game through fan voting and he had like two points through his entire season and he was like leading the way because it was just an online troll job. Um and I think he got to play in it, and I and it was cool because I think if I remember correctly, somebody can correct me on this if they're a hockey person, but I think he was really well received by the people who were in the All Star game. Like nobody looked at him funny, and everybody thought it was really cool. And I think the NHL tried to put the kibosh on it, and the players were basically like, "No, keep him in here. He the fans want him in there, you know." But obviously, you know, you could definitely have a troll campaign that ends up making a mockery of the celebration. And if you're the NHL, you could see how that would be a mockery of the All-Star game because it's supposed to be stars, not some random grinder who ends up being the lifeblood of your team anyway. Lull. 
But um, so you could see why you want to keep this in the hands of the professionals just to keep it clean and moving and stuff like that. And so like, you know, some hentai game doesn't win game of the year or something like that. But a lot, like I said, a lot of these major publications are either owned by or very heavily slanted towards the big players in the industry whose studios then create the games that are nominated. I don't know how much prestige winning game of the year gives a, a studio or anything like that, but it feels like a bit of a, a circle jerk. And, you know, it's like it it's just like they're all just patting themselves on the back and being like, oh, yeah, look at how great we are. Let's like get our. Did you need more marketing for God of War and Horizon Forbidden West? I don't think so. You marketed the butt off of it and they were fine games. They were I enjoyed got both of them to differing degrees, but they're both good games. But it feels a little bit unfair that like, you know, there's one category for indies where six whole indie titles get nominated. And it just feels like, why do you need to pat yourself on the back so much? But counterpoint to myself, it takes two one last year. So what the hell do I know? Like that, that wasn't exactly like a, you know, major AAA title release that was marketed like crazy or anything like that. Um, as least, at least that I remember. I think I'd just like to see a bit more variety though. You know, like I think maybe the way that I would do it, um, is maybe adjust it so that a game can only get nominated for one or two categories, right? Obviously, this seems unfair if a game like comes out and crushes it and everybody thinks it deserves to win in all the categories, like narrative, gameplay, graphics, whatever. But and it, and it can't win those categories because it can't be nominated. But I think that it creates a nice balance of like you want to actually celebrate a lot of the games that came out this year. Obviously, you can't celebrate all of them, but you want to celebrate a lot of them. And I think that's that's the point. And that's, you know, the stated mission of the Game Awards is to celebrate gaming as a hobby and the achievements in gaming in the last year. So having the same four category or four games in, in almost every category feels a little bit counterintuitive to that it also would help you know giving exposure to games that maybe don't have the massing marketing budget the massive marketing budget that AAA studios have like i mentioned god of war and horizon forbidden west those games got marketed i saw them everywhere before they came out elden ring same thing i saw these games everywhere before they came out i didn't see tunic anywhere before it came out um and i should have i wanted i would have wanted to you know so it it might be nice to give, you know, a big platform to some of these indie games that don't have the same marketing budget. So we recently came up with the idea on stream that uh, I, I should do, run my own gaming awards show and I might do that as a subathon goal later in the year. Um, and I really want to because it would be my, you know, put my money where my mouth is, right? Like I'm I'm saying the game awards to do this, that and the other thing. So why don't I try it? And I would love to do that. And it does. Th- and, and sort of thinking about this and trying to plan it a little bit does throw into sharp relief the subjectivity of it all obviously you can't nominate every single game that was released for every category because that would that wouldn't make any sense not all games deserve to be nominated so there's going to be sub judgment calls somewhere um, and and i think the the main difference is for a small award show like mine i think that's okay because it's just for fun there's no prestige associated i have the same goal as, as mr Keeley. i want to celebrate another great year of gaming and fill in some gaps in the game awards lineup you know I would love to, you know, show some games that I really enjoyed this year to people who might not have seen them. And that's, I think that should be the goal. But when a show gets as big as the Game Awards and it actually becomes an event with some prestige to it, it kind of feels like just another marketing exercise, which I think kind of defeats the purpose. But it, is it inevitable? Is it inevitable that like Jeff wants to put on a good show and as, you know, advertisers and stuff get involved, he can scale up the show and make it really grand and big. But then you have to sort of consider the interest in your investors it's hard, you know, and I think at the end of the day, to sum up, summarize my opinion, the Game Awards for most people is just kind of harmless fun. And it's a great way, I think, to celebrate, you know, as, as much money as there is behind it. I think it's a great way and the idea behind it and the original vision of celebrating gaming in that year um, 
is very is very noble and i think it's very um how do i say this it's survived the idea has survived through the years because this has been going on for quite quite some time now i think eight this will be the ninth year maybe but it still feels like an enthusiastic show and it still feels like that that drive that jeff has mr keely has to to celebrate gaming is the primary driver of the show it doesn't feel like anybody's sold out or anything like that so it, i think it's harmless fun and i'm probably getting a little bit too bent out of shape over it um, I'm not saying don't watch the Game Awards. I'm going to watch them. You can watch them with me. Speaking of which, twitch.tv slash SparkCity. You can find me on Twitch, uh, at the Spark City on Twitter. You can always talk to me there. You can enter my Discord through my Twitch channel, typing exclamation mark Discord in the chat. Feel free to join the Discord. Let me know what you think about my topics this week. Uh, let me know what you think. Are you going to be watching the Game Awards? If you are, you can come watch it with us. Uh, we have a, We usually have a good time in the city. And let me know what you think about the idea of communities and gatekeeping. And, and do you agree that gatekeeping has a role? Do you think it should be should be more allowed? Do you think it should be less allowed? Do you think it doesn't have a place? Um, do you consider communities to be different things in their definitions? Let me know. Um, I, I like hearing this is stuff where when I'm just talking to myself, I don't always get the best perspective because it's just me. And it's just me repeatedly confirming my own bias in a lot of cases. So I'd love to hear more from from folks. So feel free to hit me up. This episode, as always, is sponsored by myself because I'm doing this because I want to. Uh, but if you enjoy, I'm glad you listened, and uh, hopefully we'll see you next episode. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Have a good week.